Hey everybody, how are we doing? Good. Uh, how was vacation? For those of you who were on vacation, my Instagram feed was full of uh, you know pictures from Florida and whatnot this week. Apparently, it was other people though, not you guys. All right, cool. Well, we're entering into Holy Week. Um, when the story of Jesus reaches its dramatic climax in cross and resurrection. Uh, but this morning, rather than staying in Palm Sunday um, with the, the triumphant entry, with the, the people waving Hosanna and, and, and waving palm branches as a sign of uh, the revolution, of the king that is coming into, a king in David's line who's going to drive out the Romans and kind of restore order to the world, we're going to fast forward to the night's just before Jesus went to the cross. Uh, the night that he went into the garden and wrestled in agony with the Father. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 26. And we're going to start at verse 36. Friends, listen carefully, for this is the word of the Lord. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. He said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, my father, if it is possible, May this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour, he asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, my father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and he prayed the third time saying the same thing. Then he returned to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come. The Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God, Thanks be to God indeed. Now, Almighty God, we ask that by the power of your Spirit, you would allow these words to be lifted off the page, that they would be driven down deep into the shadowy, darkened places of our hearts, that we may hear what it is that you would have us hear and be what it is that you would have us be. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Well, this week uh, marked the uh, 10th anniversary of the uh, World Happiness Report. It was released out by uh, the United Nations, Gallup. It's this kind of mashup of, of people, uh, UN, Gallup, a host of colleges like Columbia, London School of Economics, Oxford, um, and mostly it comprised of economists, experts of the field of positive psychology. 
they take this complex look at various kind of indicators, you know, wealth, education, form of government, uh, social media is something that they've been looking at, and they ask people to kind of rank themselves where they are as they kind of imagine their best possible life. Uh, even take a look at genetics and, you know, gets down into the details. I don't really know what to make of this, other than it's kind of interesting to see how people, you know, measure subjective well-being in the world. And for the fifth year in a row, the same nation takes the top spot as the happiest nation in the world. Anyone want to guess what it is? Wow, you guys, you guys are up on your current events. Yeah, we had, we had, I heard Finland, Iceland, Denmark. That's one, two, and three. Finland, uh, Denmark, and then Iceland, number three. Uh, Finland, right? Nordic countries take up five of the top ten. Do you want to guess where in the list of 146 nations the United States is? 45? Anyone else? 32? 16, all right? Not as bad as we thought. You guys are a little bit more optimistic than the last crowd. Who Somebody put us out like 100. And I was like, you know, come on. Uh, it turns out, actually, though, that in the United States, we are number one at thinking that we are number one in happiness in the world. So I guess all of that you know, positivity doesn't translate into actual happiness. Uh, but I find it fascinating that Finland is in the top spot. I have a friend uh, named Mary from Finland, and she once told me a joke with a very straight face. She said, how can you tell if a Finn is madly in love with his wife? He almost told her. <laughs> and she told me that, like I said, with a, with a straight face. Uh, she's got a very lovely smile, but I think I've only seen it twice because she's Finnish. So I, I wouldn't know. So clearly happiness isn't measured by like bubbly personalities, you know, or, you know, broad smiles. Um, when asked why his country was ranked at the top, one Finnish writer offered this as an explanation. Consistent with their Lutheran heritage, the Nordic countries are united in their embrace of curved aspirations for the best possible life. This mentality has famously captured in the Law of Janta, a set of commandments believed to capture something essential about the Nordic disposition to personal success. You're not to think you're anything special, you're not to imagine yourself better than we are, and you're not to think you're good at anything, and so on. So it turns out the secret to happiness is just lower your expectations, right? <laughs> now you contrast this with the United States where expectations about the kind of lives that we are supposed to live are consistently really, really high. I mean, way back in the 1930s, the sociologist Robert Burton noted the extreme emphasis on wealth, status, and fame as indicators of what the good life is in the United States. These were kind of symbols of success in America. And, you know, I think as a result of that, we have a hard time accepting narratives of disappointment and loss. We have a hard time not being winners. And so we avoid that disappointment by whatever you know, coping mechanism of choice, be that digital distraction, hustle, you know, working out and dieting obsessively, racking up as many experiences and as many things as we can, or by what the philosopher Byung Chul Han calls the violence of positivity. 
And there is a lot of research about the shadow side of always looking on the bright side. If you don't believe me, check out the Apple series, Apple TV series uh, about Adam Newman and the founding of WeWork. Um, he was this you know, charismatic guy who was able to kind of apply this reality distortion field over himself and over others, convincing investors to send in billions and billions of dollars into his company with this mix of, of charm. I mean, they believed everything that he said because he was charming or, or because of his bravado or hyperbole or this you know, quasi-spiritual talk about manifesting you know, all these things. Tons and tons of good old-fashioned positive thinking. Company took off like a rocket and then it crashed spectacularly. And it actually ended up wounding a lot of people in the process. On that note of our obsession with positivity, I've been following the work of Kate Bowler, who teaches at Duke University. You still have to listen, Rodney, even if she teaches at Duke, all right? <laughs> she is the world's most, uh, you know, foremost scholar on the prosperity gospel. And she's also a follower of Jesus, so her research doesn't come across as kind of, you know, dis, uh, you know detached kind of observance of religious phenomena. She is an insider. But she's gentle, and so she offers, you know, a, a, a critique uh, a deep critique of what she considers an alien gospel. She does it from a place of love. And just when her career was taking off, uh, publication of her first major work, uh, she had just given birth to her first child. She had a husband who cherished her. I mean, she was kind of living out the script for what a successful life should look like when she was diagnosed with an inoperable stage four cancer. And her whole life was suddenly interrupted and completely upended. And in processing the shock and the disappointment and the injury that this caused to her faith, she realized all of the ways, though she had studied the prosperity gospel and though she had deep criticisms of it, she realized all of the ways that this gospel of health and wealth and success had kind of gotten into her own narrative of life, that everything was supposed to be trending up and to the right on the graph. She'd begun to absorb that life was always supposed to be moving toward the better. And so in a pair of candid New York Times op-eds, she writes this, the idea that we're supposed to be positive all the time has become an American obsession. It gives us momentum and purpose to feel like the best is yet to come. But the problem is when it becomes a kind of poison in which it expects that people who are suffering are somehow always supposed to find the silver lining or not speak realistically about their circumstances. The main problem is that it adds shame to suffering by requiring everyone to be prescriptively joyful. If I see one more millionaire on Instagram yell that she is choosing joy while selling journals in which stay-at-home moms are supposed to write joy mantras, I'm going to lose my mind. Fair enough, right? She goes on, Cancer requires that I stumble around in the debris of dreams that I thought I was entitled to and plans I didn't realize I had made. One of the great questions of the spiritual life, one of the great questions of life in general is, what do I do when disappointment comes? What do I do when I am disappointed, not just in my circumstances, but when I am disappointed in God, when God does not deliver on the life that I rightly or wrongly believe that I am owed? 
Now, maybe suffering doesn't kick down, you know, it hasn't kicked down the walls of your life. But if that hasn't happened, it's always threatening to knock on the door. No one is immune from pain. What do you do when life is not Instagrammable? What do you do when life is not going the way that you want it to? Now, some of you um, may be coming back from vacation and you're thinking, I feel pretty good right now. The last thing I want to do is think about pain and disappointment. But I think sometimes that's because we have internalized the, the gospel of upward mobility rather than what Henry Nouwen calls the downward mobility of the cross. We follow a Messiah whose life ended in shame and mockery. And we so often want to go from the high, the hosannas of Palm Sunday, the celebration of Palm Sunday, to the celebration of the empty tomb on Easter without remembering the agony in the garden, the betrayal, the loss, and the abandonment on the cross and the pain and suffering on Good Friday. And if we lose sight of that reality, if we take on this kind of skewed view of the world, that does not set us up very well for the hardships and pain that inevitably come. Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. Gethsemane is an olive orchard not too far away from Jerusalem. The name literally means olive press, as in the place where the, the essence of the olive is smashed and crushed so that it can be used for the sake of others. Just think about that for a minute, that that's where Jesus went. It's a fitting picture for where Jesus is as he unburdens his heart before the Father the night before the cross. He is in Gethsemane both literally and metaphorically. The cross is the place where he will be crushed for the sake of others. And the thing is, like Jesus, we all come to a Gethsemane point in our lives, one way or another. We, we face our own pain, be it major or minor. We are asked to drink a cup that we don't want to drink, to shoulder a burden we don't want to bear. And it's not what we want. And when things aren't working or, 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 or being you know, lived out the way that we think that they are supposed to, because we all have that one area in our life, that one critical area. Maybe God is you know, so vibrant, so present in other areas, but there's this one area in our lives where he seems absent and deafeningly silent. Space where if we had heard a clear no, at least that would be something. Because no, at least, you know, you know that somebody is listening when they say no. No is an invitation to have further conversation. No invites more communication. But what do we do when we hear nothing? Silence feels like the only one who can heal the disease that racks my daughter's body can't be bothered with an answer. Or the only one who can clear a pathway through this pain has a do not disturb sign on the door and a picture of a pit bull next to the doorbell. Or the one that I've called out to for companionship for years is too distracted to hear the deepest cries of my heart. Silence leaves me feeling that God sees and hears what is going on with me but is too busy to do anything about it. That's what it seems like to the person who clasps their hands in prayer. And there's no 
spirituality, there's no theology, there's no worldview or philosophy of life that can sidestep the unavoidably painful and heart-wrenchingly personal question, where is God when I am suffering? And as we approach this Holy Week, it's important to note that God's silence stalked the last day of Jesus' life. And yet, prayer is the crucible where trust is forged for Jesus. So if we are going to be people of prayer, if we are going to take God up on this, this promise, this, this gracious initiative to reach out to him in, in, in relationship, to be present with him, this, this promise of intimacy, if we are going to be people who cling to this hope that through our words, the kingdom of God comes into this earth, then we are also going to need to be people who learn how to deal with God's silence. What do we do when God disappoints us? How do we pray? Where is the template for that? Well, as always, Jesus is the one that we look to, and he just keeps on coming back to the Father in prayer. There is so much that we can learn from Jesus when we face our own Gethsemane moments. This can serve as a model for how we pray, for how we carry the, the pain and the suffering inside of us to God when our souls feel overwhelmed. But I want to just this morning, as we round out this series on prayer and step into Holy Week, focus on three things. First is that Jesus entrusts his emotions to God. He says, my soul is overwhelmed to sorrow to the point of death. One of the first things that strikes me about this moment is that there is no filter. There's no edit button. Jesus is raw. He is open. He is vulnerable with God. He is processing his feelings with the one that he called Father. And I've said this before, you know, that this is the beginning of true prayer. And I think the point is worth repeating that so often a lot of us find prayer really boring because a lot of the times we're not praying, we're doing something else. We're doing something else with our our lips, with our bodies, with our minds. We talk at God, but we are not talking with God. And even when we do talk with God, we, we filter, we edit, we try to process through everything and arrive at a conclusion so that we can bring a sanitized version of what is in us to God. Rather than take up the raw and unpolished parts of our lives to God, because we're not sure that we can really trust God with that, we hold back a lot of what we're feeling, uh, either because we think, you know, that doesn't square with with good theology or with what what I was taught. Uh, We think we shouldn't be feeling that way. But I got to ask, I mean, have you ever read the Psalms? There is a lot of gnarly stuff in there. We once earlier in the like a year ago, uh, our health advisory team was meeting when we were kind of at the thick of things with with COVID, and um, we would start every meeting at with a reading of the Psalter, you know, the the Psalm from the the evening reading from the the Book of Common Prayer. And one evening we got to Psalm one thirty seven which includes the line about dashing infants' skulls against the rocks. And we, we're saying this, and we're, we're meant to kind of meditatively pray through this. And we get to that spot, and we're just like, <laughs> really uncomfortable, right? And yet somehow these are this, this mashup of divine and human words. 
let me ante up the discomfort a little that while I don't think you can build an entire theology on the book of Psalms, nonetheless, this is scripture. This is somehow God's word to us. It tells the story of God's grace in Jesus that it is ordained by God as a model for us to carry what is inside of us to God. And it makes us uncomfortable. But then you see images of the Ukrainian father gripping the face of his son's lifeless body, desperate and broken. Or we read about a girl found locked in a basement, stolen away from her parents as a child, sold into sexual slavery. Or we think about the mother of Amir Locke, whose son was killed by police who mistakenly kicked down the wrong door. And you think, what kind of prayer makes sense in that pain? What kind of prayer makes sense to call on God's justice in the midst of that pain? What if in these prayers in the face of radical evil, what if they help us to, in the words of Tish Harrison Warren, trust in God's mercy, but also in his righteous, loving, and protective rage? How many of us don't have those feelings of rage and desire for revenge and, and anger at our enemies and anger at injustice in the world, this desire for wrongs to be made right? Or, or how many of us have these feelings of, of frustration, of, of desperate you know, uh, sense that God has not lived up to his end of the bargain, that his, his character is on the line here, right or wrong? How many of us have those feelings inside of us? I, I love this line from John Orperg. He says that prayer is not a place to be good, it is a place to be honest. God wants us to express the full bandwidth of our emotions, the good, the bad, the ugly, to him, no filter, to let it be with him and let whatever is inside of us come to the surface under the loving care of a father whose primary characteristic is steadfast love. And that's what we see in Jesus. He offers it up to the father. So first, Jesus gives God his feelings. Second, Jesus entrusts his desires to God. If it is possible, let this cup fall from me. Jesus is going to the cross, but he is asking not to go. Think about the gravity of that statement for just a moment. The climax of his ministry, the most significant event in human history, and Jesus is saying there has got to be another way. I don't want to do this. Jesus is modeling and teaching us to bring all of our desires to God, not just the good ones. Same thing with our feelings. Uh, some of the desires that we have, we are embarrassed by or we are scared of. Uh, so often when I pray, I filter through my own desires and I, and I give to God readily the ones that I think are good, you know, the ones that I'm okay with, uh, the ones that I you know, get my stamp of approval. I don't know what God thinks about them, but I'm like, I'm okay with you, having, you know, seeing that part of it. And of course, God sees the whole. But then the ones that I feel bad about or the ones that I think shouldn't be there, I either stuff those away or, or try to you know, explain them away or deny them or wallow in them or repent or whatever it is. And then there's just a whole lot in the middle that I don't know what to make of, heads or tails. Uh, the times when my heart feels like a bad committee meeting is going on. Like the kind of meeting that should have been an email, like that, that moment. 
And, and, and I don't know what to do with those. I mean, the heart is, is confusing. Our desires are complex. We are all like uh, Jack Sparrow's compass from Pirates of the Caribbean, right? That thing that spins around, kind of chasing after whatever it desires most, never leading us in a straight line because we never know deep down what it is that we want. I love the fact that in John's gospel, the very first question that Jesus asks to one of the disciples is, what do you want? Because, man, is not that the question that is cutting through all of our lives? What do you want? Do you even know? Half of the time, do you even know what you want? Because so often we, we confuse our strongest desires, like those ones that, that pull like with the weight of gravity on our, on our hearts, those urges in our body, be they for, for food, for sex, for companionship, for, for whatever, we confuse those really strong desires with our deepest desires, the things that are the true longing of our hearts, that part of our heart that is made to long for the kingdom of God. We get it confused all the time. But Jesus trusts all of his desires to the Father. He trusts him to sort them out. And I think for so many of us, this is a key practice for our growth in the way of Jesus. What if... In the moment of temptation, when jealousy or, or bitterness raises its head, or you have that temptation to fire off that really mean tweet or that really nasty email that might feel good for a second, or you have that desire within you to go to that website to objectify that person for sexual pleasure, what if in that moment you were to take that desire and be brutally honest with it and present it to God and say, here it is, this is in me. I don't know what to do with it, but I leave it with you. I had an experience of that this, this week. Uh, we were up in the North Coast in California. I uh, had an opportunity to speak at a retreat near Santa Cruz, and my family went up to Half Moon Bay and uh, San Francisco for a few days. And we were driving around the Presidio, which is like this super posh part of the city, uh, you know, these insane $30 million houses you know, overlook the Golden Gate Bridge and the Pacific Ocean, and it's situated in the middle of a state park. So, like, everything's, like, clean and beautiful, and the trees and the cliffs, and I am convinced that if there were, like, a pattern for the city of the heavenly Jerusalem, it would look a lot like San Francisco on a very clean day when it's warm and not freezing outside. Maybe minus all the naked people that you stumble across at the beach that you didn't know was a nude beach. But that's a whole other story. <laughs> anyway, I was out there and I was, you know, taking notes actually for this sermon right here. And I was sitting under a tree at the Presidio while my family was at the Walt Disney Museum. And I started having these feelings, you know, kind of these, these desires kind of well up in me. And they started to manifest themselves in you know, this, this kind of really harsh judgmentalism that was going on in my spirit against all of the wealth and all of the excess. I think it was right around the time I saw the 17th Waymo car, like these, these autonomous, you know, driverless cars that just like start taking off. It's really weird. But this, this, this kind of thing was going on inside of me. Like, yeah, you've got that nice house. Who are you exploiting to get it? And I realized that all that was just masking this desire that I had underneath of like, I want that house. <laughs> it's just jealousy peeking its head out. I want that view. I'd appreciate it way more than you on your stupid Twitter yacht or whatever it is that you've got going on. 
So what if instead of like, oh, I'm terrible, like I'm a terrible person for judging these people, I don't even know. I'm a terrible person for like, you know, thinking these thoughts. Jesus, you didn't even own a house. And here I am like wanting this massive one. Here I am feeling all greedy and judgy and all that. What if instead of beating myself up, which is generally kind of how I roll, I were to say, here, I have this desire. This desire for more than I need. This desire for something that keeps me from appreciating all of the good and beautiful and important things that are right in front of me. I have it. I have this desire. It's in me. And I give it to you. I think praying with integrity is less about living perfectly than it is about wrestling faithfully with the things that are going on inside of us. So Jesus gives his emotions, he gives his desires, and then last, he surrenders his will to God. Not as I will, he says, but as you will. You notice in this short passage, Jesus goes to the Father three times in prayer. He doesn't go once, he keeps on going, he keeps at it. And each time there is this kind of subtle shift in the posture of his heart as he approaches. If it's not possible for this cup to pass, okay, I will drink it. Your will be done. Because the truth is Jesus' deepest longing beneath all of the emotions, beneath all of the strong desires to avoid pain, rejection, and the cross is the desire to see the Father's will done to live in communion with the Father, to live in that place uh, of God's presence and to live for God's glory, for God to have his way in and through his life. That is the deepest desire of Jesus' heart. And my guess is that if you are an apprentice of Jesus, deep down your strongest desire is the same. It might be buried beneath a lot of contradictory emotions and the other desires that you have, But deep down, your desire is to live in step with the Spirit in the abundance of life in the kingdom because that is what you were made for. I think of this line from St. Paul. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of the resurrection. I may not want this pain. I may not want this, this silence. But I want your life to be revealed in mine above all else. And for Jesus, this moment of acceptance does not come before prayer. It comes through prayer. It comes right in the middle of it. In this time of prayer, you know, realizing that there's, there's no life hack around this. There's no, there's no magic bullet. There's, there's no way to go around the suffering that we are in. There is only the opportunity to meet God in the midst of it. And in that comes the trust and acceptance Soren Kierkegaard has this great line about purity of heart being able to just will one thing. And whatever that is that's going to lead to the fullness of God's life growing deeper in me, that's the thing. And so Jesus' prayer in Gethsemane is not just a prayer, it is a posture. It is a way of being in the world, and it's the only way of being that makes sense. Psychologists tell us all the time that you know, so much of what we think we can control in life, like we, we can't really control it. Uh, a lot of the things that we think we have power over, it's just an illusion. And 
you know, so we do our part. We do what we can. We bring it to God. We keep bringing it. But eventually, we come to surrender. Prayer as a spiritual practice is a reminder that, as with all the practice, God is the one who is doing the work in us. He's the one who's doing the formation. And most of what God is doing, he is doing beneath the service in ways that we are not even aware of. We are not in charge of the outcomes of what God is doing, and that is a good thing. And so maybe we don't need things to always trend up and to the right, but we need whatever it is that will lead to his deepening life within us. And it's in the crucible. It's in this place where he is pressed out, where, where Jesus gives his emotions, he gives his trust, he gives his desires to God. Well, that's the way of Jesus. This is what it looks like to practice his ways, what it looks to live like it out in the crucible moments of our own lives. And so my question for us as we enter into Holy Week is, what invitations in your pain and in your suffering do you have to sit and meet God? In those places where our, our faith is formed and forged beneath the level of our awareness, what is God doing in your life in that space? Because the reality is, however the story of your life goes, there will be a Gethsemane. God is waiting for you there. And the invitation is to meet him. To give your emotions, your desires, your wills to God. That, that's how we learn how to trust. And the thing is, Jesus is more than just a moral you know, teacher. He, he's more than just an example for us. He is very God. He is the one who gives us a pattern to surrender. He is the one who went into the garden of his own free will and surrendered his power to the powers of the world. And in going to this garden, he abandoned his will to the Father to undo the curse that began in another garden when we rebelled against the will of the Father. And to in this garden, to take up his life and for it to be pressed out and given for the sake of others. To take our sin on his body. To take our suffering on his shoulders. To drink the cup that should have been ours to drink. And he does it because of love. And because of that, he is worthy of our trust. We tell the story of that trust every time, every week we come to this table when we reenact that story that took place just a little bit before the garden. When Jesus gathered his disciples together in a room, it was the culmination of three years of their walking with him. Three years of them hearing him speak out the words of truth, the words of the kingdom, bringing the kingdom in power and through healings through manifestations of the spirits, what it looks like for the peace of God to break into the world. And so for the disciples, their expectations were high that night. They came into Palm Sunday believing that Jesus was going to use that power to trample their enemies, not knowing that what Jesus was going to do was take care of the enemies in their own hearts to take hold of the sin that holds us all captive. And he does it on the cross. And he does it in the empty tomb. 
And so as we come to this table, we remember. And as we come, let us pray. The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God.